This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 383, Rommel Comes for Tobruk. Last time, Rommel had completed his preparation for his next attack. Conversely, C&C Middle East Auchinleck felt confident that his side would prevail. After all, General Ritchie, the 8th Army commander, had a 2-to-1 superiority over the Germans and was on par with the Italians in terms of tanks. And that's what the C&C said was needed for victory. Even better, the Allies knew almost to the day when Rommel would attack. The waiting was all. On May 26th, the day that Rommel launched Operation Venencia, luck was on his side as a chasm or windstorm came up from the south. Normally, this would be welcomed by the attacker as his or her troops would get into position camouflaged. However, Rommel wanted the British to see his forces, at least those to the north, closest to the coast, for that was his feint. The Cruvel group, though Cruvel himself wasn't there that day, was made up of four Italian divisions, and they rumbled into position across from the Indian divisions, who were shielding the town of Gazala just behind them. To make sure the winds did not camouflage the Italians, Rommel had artillery and air attacks begin against the Indians, as he wanted all eyes that were British or British-led focused here. But that was only the first phase of his sleight of hand. Just below the center of the British line, and a bit to the west of it, was Rotunda Signali, a town of some size. From it poured the armor of the Africa Corps and the many trucks with them, and they seemed to be heading for the center to get access to the Trig Capuzzo, a road that runs due east until after it passes to Brook, 
Then it turns north to connect with the main road just off the coastline. And that led to Egypt. Though Rommel could not know this, this is where Auchinleck believed the main attack was coming at, and so this feint fit the CNC's narrative. These various moves, the Cruvel group moving closer to the Indians up north, the Panthers coming out of a town to head for the center of the line, it took time. When the sun went down, the South Africans wisely sent out reconnaissance patrols, and luckily they spotted the Africa Corps turning and heading south towards Beer Haitian, where the Free French were waiting. As the hours went by, more reports came in of the Axis armor heading south, just in front of the defensive line. But for whatever reason, both Messervy and General Nori chose not to believe these reports, thinking, no, this was the feint. They would wait until dawn, send out a scout plane, and then go from there thinking all they had to do, still, was stand and fight. Their numbers would determine the outcome. But, as Rommel had written, as Napoleon had written, as many military leaders throughout history have written, the main endeavor should be to concentrate one's own forces in space and time, while at the same time seeking to split the enemy forces and destroying them at different times. In other words, divide and conquer. Rommel had already decided to chew up the enemy piecemeal, that is, if they would let him, by staying in their relative positions, thinking defensively. And that's exactly what Messervy and Nori were thinking. But the final decision, of course, was with the 8th Army commander, Ritchie, right? Not so much. At no point in this battle did he make a decision without getting the input from his staff. In other words, combat by committee, which hardly ever works. To further demonstrate this, as the Panzers were heading towards the Free French at the bottom of the line, if one were standing in the midst of the Free French and you looked to your one o'clock direction, you would see the 22nd Armored Brigade Group through binoculars. Next, if you looked to the three o'clock position, you would see the 4th Armored Brigade Group, again through binoculars. Thus, those two groups could have been ordered to come closer to the French for mutual support, should the enemy be making a serious attempt here. But they were not ordered to move, because Ritchie's sub-commanders wanted a clearer picture of where Rommel's main thrust was going to land first. Of course, by then he would be well on his way, but the British-led forces were thinking, we can still handle him, we just need more intelligence. Then came Rommel's first surprise. As it got late on May 26, the Africa Corps, with their leader in tow, did not slow down. They certainly did not stop for the night, but instead kept going, making for a position about 10 miles southeast of Beer Haitian. Only when they got there did they stop and rest for an hour. Meanwhile, the Free French, manning a defensive position, did not have the means to move out and launch their own attack, though they could clearly see the Germans and the Italians. Besides, the Free French, they were the anchor, holding the entire line together. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub 
with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Before the sun rose on December 27th, the second day of battle, Allied reconnaissance planes were sent up, and sure enough, they soon found Africa Corps and its 10,000 vehicles near the Free French. And the obvious answer was to send in an air attack, but Rommel had already thought this through. By the time the Allied bombers and fighters reached the southern area, the Panzers were already mixing it up with the 3rd Indian Motor Brigade Group. To the southeast of the Free French, but a bit closer than Rommel's group had been, was the 3rd Brigade Group at point one seven one. As they were in close quarters with the Germans and Italians, it was nigh on impossible for the Allied bombers to choose a safe target. But getting back to the 3rd Indian Brigade Group, they were representative of the overall defensive quality of the Allies. The 3rd Brigade had mixed it up with Rommel before, at Makili, about a year ago. That had not gone well, and neither would this encounter. For one, the brigade had just shown up the day before, and two, most of their anti-tank artillery was still en route. So when Rommel spontaneously decided to hit point one seven one, given its weakness, versus hitting the Free French, the Indians were about to be in a bad way. As the sun rose that day, the 3rd Indian Brigade commander radioed headquarters, saying, We've got the whole bloody Africa Corps in front of us! Which was true enough, but not every vehicle the commander saw was coming after him. Though Rommel had decided to hit the Indians instead of the Free French, that did not mean the other parts of his armored thrust would be staying with him. No, they would be continuing to swing east and then north to get deep into the enemy's rear. Specifically, Rommel would use the Ariete Division and a part of the 21st Panzer Division to attack the 3rd Indian Brigade Group. Meanwhile, the rest of the 21st Panzer and the 15th Panzer Division would turn north, while the 90th Light Division, the southernmost part of this massive flanking movement, would continue on. Alas, not all goes perfectly in war, not even for Rommel. As he began to attack the Indians, the Trieste Division got lost and bumped into the minefield just above the Free French. Rommel came at the 3rd Indian Brigade with his usual zeal for battle, whereas the Indians, as they had a year ago, did the best they could with what they had. Not that that was very much. Thus, in a short time, the brigade group was scattered with the Indians losing some 400 men, all told, now POWs of the Africa Corps. In exchange, Rommel did lose 50 tanks in the process, 
not exactly a favorable exchange for him. The third Indian, well, its survivors, would eventually be reformed with the men of the 29th Indian Brigade. While Rommel had been busy at work, the 15th Panzer Division, still swinging to the northeast, ran into the 4th Armored Brigade group as it was coming southwest to get into a position east of the 3rd Indian Brigade. This also put the 4th Armored Brigade just west of the 7th Motor Brigade. Basically, the 4th Armored was filling in a hole between the two brigades, but hindsight allows us the observation that if the Allied tanks had moved out 24 hours earlier when the Africa Corps was still heading south, the 3rd Indian Brigade might not have come unraveled, much like General Ritchie's plan was about to do. Unfortunately for the Allies, just before the 15th Panzer and the 4th Armored clashed, a radio message was sent out by the Allied armor telling headquarters of what they saw before them. We don't think it's anything very serious. This messenger could not have been more wrong. Because the 4th Armored had not been sent out earlier, it literally crashed into the 15th Panzer, as in the Allies did not have time to set up their battle positions. Worst, the first two regiments to reach the Germans, the 3rd Royal Tanks and the 8th Hussars, went in piecemeal with no plan, no coordination for support. Both were mauled, but did manage to take out a number of panzers. Brigadier Richards saw this and decided they needed a restart, so he ordered the 4th Armored to retreat back up north to El Abden, just south of Tobruk, to properly set themselves up before they returned for another round. Just south of this fighting, the 90th Light Division was wheeling by to make for the 7th Motor Brigade group, located just to the east of the now-scattered 3rd Indian Motor Brigade. Like the 4th Armored, the Panzers hit the 7th Motor Brigade group before they could properly deploy. Thus, they, like the Free French, like the 3rd Indian, and like the 4th Armored, were soon decimated, scattered, and sent retreating due east to Bir el Gubi. Sadly, for the personnel of the 7th Armored Division headquarters, located just above where the 7th Motor Brigade had been, once the 90th Light Division won there, it sent a reconnaissance in force to the north. Soon, the small group came upon the lightly defended 7th Armored Headquarters. The defending units were pushed away, and General Messervie and his senior general staff officer were captured. Fortunately, they had the good sense to hide their rank and would later escape. But for the moment, the 7th Armored Division had lost its head, and its three brigade groups had already been smashed and scattered, and the day was hardly over. Unsurprisingly, the Corps Commander, General Norrie, could not reach Messervie and, thinking the worst, ordered Lumsden to head south to find out what was going on and give support to Messervie, should he need it. Yet Lumsden did not agree with this order. He said, whatever is going on to the south might not be the main attack. That could still come through the center at Trig Campuzo. No, sir, it's best to wait. But to this, Norrie insisted. Hence, the 22nd Armor Brigade group headed south after a delay. As the 22nd Armor Brigade was about 12 miles north by northeast of the defeated 3rd Indian group, just east of the Free French, 
It would not take them long to get into position. The problem was the panzers were already there. Like before, the 22nd Armor did not have time to set up properly or coordinate an attack, and thus quickly lost 30 of their own tanks. But again, after dishing out their own justice. Lumsden pulled back his brigade to the Knight's Bridge box, about 10 miles north of where the 22nd had started from. Lumsden had every intention of reorganizing the 22nd and sending it back south. He just needed more time. Whereas by noon, Rommel considered the first phase of his attack as complete, and it had gone well. After all, he had been allowed to concentrate his armor against four separated brigade groups and bested them all. But here's where Rommel made a mistake. Believing too much in his intelligence officer, Major von Melathen's report that said Rommel had dealt with the defender's tanks, that left him free to head north and then turn west to attack the Indians of the main line from the rear, and also to make sure they could not escape along the coast road. Thus were the commanders of Africa Corps told to boldly go north, throw caution to the wind, which is exactly what they did, and paid the price for it. As the 22nd Armor Brigade was still retreating north to Knightsbridge Box, they soon found that panzers were on their tails. There was nothing for it but to turn and fight. But at least this time, they would coordinate their stopping and their first shots. On came the panzers. When the Germans saw the British turning around, they assumed it would be a turkey shoot. But in their eagerness and the British quick response, the panzer leaders did not have their time to coordinate their own initial response with their artillery. As it was, the leading panzers of the nearest battalions were slammed into. The losses started mounting quickly. What really saved the day was the American Grant tanks and the crews who, despite the approaching panzers, stayed calm and fired true. Of course, the Germans, despite the smoking wrecks of some of their panzers, still felt that this would end in their victory, as had the last four tank battles that day. But having bloodied the nose of the two panzer divisions, the British-led forces spread out confidently and started firing on the attackers' flanks. Soon, Axis losses from both sides were being reported in. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. As the afternoon wore on, the Allied troops got into a rhythm, staying focused when they bumped into an enemy panzer or a small group of them, firing together, all the while moving, seeking the next target. Compared to the Axis forces who lost cohesion as each minute went by. Basically, the 4th Armor was doing it by the book, having your tanks shoot at the enemy while shielded by artillery. The Germans were not doing this and either suffered lost or damaged tanks, while the rest moved back to the southwest to get out of range of those guns. 
Specifically, as the 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions had been heading north, the 15th was on the right, and the 21st was on the left when they had been attacked that day. And yes, the Allied tanks and artillery had done well, but more than that, the Germans' infantry screens had been pierced. On the right side, the 15th Panzer's infantry regiment had been cut down and pushed to the side while the 21st Panzer, on the left, had suffered the same thing, provided by the 1st Army Tank Brigade. Further, the 90th Light Division had been pushed away from El Abdin, just south of Tobruk, by the 4th Armored Division, which indeed, after getting itself straightened out, did rush back into the fight. Back to the 15th and 21st Panzer, both sides had, by the end of the second day of fighting, lost one-third of their panzers, and the 15th was practically out of fuel, whereas the 21st Panzer had a little bit more fuel and a few more tanks. Still, things looked precarious. Making matters worse for the Desert Fox, he was to the southeast of his two armored columns, at Bir el-Harmat, with most of the supplies, including the fuel. Between him and his panzers were at least two armored brigade groups. That night, both sides assessed the day's events, planned out tomorrow's contest, and thus sent out the appropriate orders that night for preparation. General Ritchie, still leading by committee, decided to put up a barrier just north and east of the two panzer divisions. That would stop them from moving any further into the Allied rear. If they wanted to head west to retreat, that was fine with Ritchie. Whereas Rommel's orders for the next day were more specific and ambitious. First, he told the Ariete Division to leave Beer Hachim and the conquered Free French, and for the 90th Light Division to come to him at Beer El Harmat. So reinforced by these units, he himself would serve as a supply base for his panzers. But this supply base would be mobile. He ordered the 21st and the 15th Panzers to move north anyways to cut off the coast road. Meanwhile, he would move north and try to get to them with his fuel. But there was one more order to emanate from Rommel. That night, the Pavia and Trieste divisions were to clear a path through different sections of the minefield along the main defensive line. One was to be along the Trig Campuzo, which is right in the center of the defensive line, and the other is at the Trig El Abd, which runs south of the Trig Campuzo. That way, Rommel could get supplies to himself faster, and if his panzers could reach the coast road, the supply line to them would be shorter as well. No more going around the minefield. As for the Free French, they had been scattered. With that done, both sides' commands settled down for the night. The British, hoping they had stopped Rommel's thrust, though they had lost many tanks for two days of fighting, and Rommel, with his ever-thirst for glory, for victory, thought about his panzers shelling the coastal highway, while the two soon-to-be gaps in the minefield brought him ever more men, tanks, and fuel. The battle would be rejoined on the morrow. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to shout out to the to the supporters of the show. Uh, let's see here, members. Uh, Lindsay Webb from 
Belnala, Victoria in Australia. Uh, hey, Lindsay, how's it going? Thank you for being the only member this week, I think. Uh, as far as donations, there's Donald Buck, which is a cool name. Uh, and then there's Matt Bilge. And Matt and I had a couple of emails going back and forth. He, uh, he made a donation and he sent a nice email. There was also a Jay Gardner who uh, sent a nice email. I think I might have mentioned him. And in case I did not mention this, I want to say hi to Dale Fowler in Austin, Texas. Uh, back in 2020, he had some surgery. I think he was laid up for a while and he said he listened to the podcast. He just ripped through the episodes Again, the idea of someone sitting down for hours or days with my voice in their head, that should be scary. That should be a red flag to you. But uh, he said it helped him get through. And so, Dale, I hope everything's great now. I hope everything's fine. Um, I'm glad I could be there for you during that crazy time. So to all those people and to everyone else who listens, thank you very much. We'll see you as soon as we can with the next episode. And we'll see what happens with Rommel, General Ritchie, Auchinleck, and the Africa Corps. Take care, everyone.